Money is changing, both in form and function. Money Reimagined is about the changing nature of money, digital currencies, and various topics related to finance, blockchain technology, artificial intelligence, and more. Michael Casey and Sheila Warren walk us through the dynamic and evolving nature of the global economy and the implications for businesses, governments, and individuals as they must adapt to new payment methods and technologies. Welcome to Money Reimagined. Hello and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Michael Casey. Thank you for joining us. You can, of course, listen to us weekly here on the Coindesk Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. And we, as always, would love to hear from you. So do tell us what you think. If you have any thoughts about this or any one of our other prior or later episodes, you can uh, email us at podcast at coindesk.com. Make sure you use the subject line, Money Reimagined. Okay, uh, this week, it's the it's kind of like the topic that's been around, Sheila, for, you know, a I suppose about a month or so now, uh, the institutionalization of of crypto. Of course, the big news from a month or so ago of uh, BlackRock and then a few others either uh, submitting or resubmitting their ETF uh, applications, giving everybody the idea that the institutions are coming. BlackRock, of course, being the biggest asset manager in the world. And today, you and I, we're just going to jump straight into this. We're going to bring in somebody who I think probably more than anyone I know uh, is able to articulate the significance of the intersection of institutions, Wall Street, traditional finance, and crypto. Uh, and that, of course, if anyone can guess, is Noel Acheson, a dear friend, former uh, head of Coindesk Research, for a while was also head of Market Insights at Genesis, and is now the author of the must-read newsletter, Crypto is Macro Now. Noel, welcome to the show. You know, as you see, I'm just going straight to you. Usually I get Sheila to say a few words here, Sheila, but because she's a special <laughs> guest, we're, we're just like <laughs> bypassing you. You're going to get in soon. Um, <laughs> well, Noelle is such a frequent visitor to the pod that she's like our our, our third shadow co-host. I feel like I'm often like, well, no, Noelle. There you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah certainly, certainly. She, she, she could, she could <laughs> slot totally into that role. I'm totally flattered if said that. Thank you, Sheila. <laughs> <laughs> Great to see you. Uh, but I was so yeah. struck by, Noel, your newsletter this week, and you just sort of like had a little go at a certain CEO of BlackRock, uh, Mr. Larry Fink. Yeah, of course, head of the biggest asset manager in the, in the world. And he had a few words to say about why BlackRock, of all institutions, is interested in Bitcoin. Let's see if we can just have a quick listen to what he had to say. Well, we, we try to do what's right for the long-term investor. And I think we have a good track record working with our regulators and trying to making sure we are, we're thinking about all the, all the issues around uh, any filing. And so I can't get into the specifics of this filing, but I think the chart speaks quite well. We work really closely with our regulators and we want to hear from the regulators what they, what are their issues and how can, and can we fix those issues around that? So we hope that like in our, in the past, we could be working with our regulators and get the filing approved one day. And I don't, ha I have no idea what that one day will be, but, um, and, and so we'll see how that all plays out specifically on, on Bitcoin, as I've said in the past, um, we're a believer in digitization of products. You know, ETFs was a big revolution for the mutual fund industry, and it's really taking over the mutual fund industry. And we do believe that if we can create uh, more tokenization of assets and securities, and that's what Bitcoin is, 
it could revolutionize again uh, finance. And so we look at this as, a, as an opportunity to move one step further in terms of uh, providing uh, investors, you know, fractions of shares, fractions of this, democratizing the cost of investing. You know, over the last 10 years, we've lowered the cost of iShares ETFs by 30%. So what, what we're trying to do is make it more accessible or easy. So I don't know about that one, Noel. Bitcoin is the tokenization of assets. BlackRock is democratizing finance. They're, exactly. they're great ideas. I'm all for both of those concepts. I'm not sure that the Bitcoin ETF that BlackRock is doing is doing either of those. What, what are your thoughts? Exactly, Michael. Exactly. And, you know, first of all, huge respect due to Larry Fink. He's obviously a very intelligent man and he did not get to where he got to by not working really hard. And we should acknowledge what he has done for capital markets more broadly. But as you know, Michael, we've worked together a long time. I get really irritated with empty hype. And that is what I heard in his words. Let's say that that empty hype is not necessarily bad in this case. It's a net positive because it is broadening awareness. There is such a thing called Bitcoin and that there may be ETFs coming. And all of that, I believe, is a net positive for the industry. We can get into that in a bit more detail in a minute. But a lot of what he said, as you pointed out, is just wrong and shows that he does not get Bitcoin. Many people have argued that what he said is much more significant than what Paul Tudor Jones said back in 2020. I disagree because Paul Tudor Jones actually did his homework and has shown signs of understanding the potential. But for Larry Fink to confuse Bitcoin with tokenized securities, for him to conflate Bitcoin with crypto more broadly, which he does later on in his little snippet there, and for him to even use words like revolutionize finance, democratize access, those are just very misguided, hype-laden terms that irritate me. So that's why I went into the little long bullet point of what he gets wrong. And most of our listeners, I think, probably have uh, some some thoughts here. And most would understand that, of course, Bitcoin is a native token that resides on its own blockchain. And therefore, the idea of it tokenizing something else is a bit of a weird idea, I suppose, to just like wrap it all up. And Sheila, I'd love to hear your thoughts here. The idea that, that BlackRock, which is inserting itself as a player in the middle, uh, essentially owning the uh, the underlying assets and therefore you know selling off shares in them to people is democratizing is is kind of a, a, a little bit of a distortion of the whole own your own asset uh, ethos that, that the Bitcoin um, community is supposed to be all about. But Sheila, what do you want to have to say about this? Well, I agree with all of this, uh, but, uh, you know, controversial counterpoint, like, okay, does it really matter? Right? And on some level, does Larry Fink's accuracy or inaccuracy or conception of what Bitcoin is or isn't, is that the point of his comment, right? Is that how relevant is that? I mean, I, again, agreeing with everything that's been said. And Michael, you started in a place that I want to I want to push on a little bit, which is, okay, this has been a discussion for the last month. Well, I would say it's been a discussion for forever. It's just kind of come right. to a new point, right, in the last month with the advent of conversations like the one we're talking well, about. Well, the, the, the ATF filings is what I was referring ATF to. ATF filings, right. this, exactly. This is, yeah, this has been around for quite some this time. This has been around for a very long time. This is the latest kind of instance of what this looks like. So, Noel, I just love your thoughts on that, right? To the extent that maybe uh, some of these folks are never really going to understand the ethos of it, and maybe we don't even expect that to be the case. Regardless, what do you think the implications are of this conversation? And I think you, as you began to say, I think this is a really significant moment. So- I'd love to hear your thoughts there. Totally agree that it doesn't really matter, Sheila, except 
he's Larry Fink and people listen to him. And if what he says Bitcoin is, that's what people take to understand Bitcoin is. It's a misconception from the very beginning. It means a, a wider swathe of people will continue to misunderstand what this asset class actually offers finance around the world. Totally right. This is not a new conversation. I remember starting to cover institutional interest for Coindesk back in end of 2018, it was. Back then, the whole tagline was, the institutions are coming, the institutions mm -hmm. are coming. And then we started to get a whole bunch of ETF filings, 2019. Remember the Gemini one? I think that was back then. A lot of others followed. And the price rallied on the back of that speculation. I mean, now we can look back on that and laugh at how excited we were then. We were actually mm -hmm. going to get a spot ETF. Seemed like a lifetime ago. But the institutionalization of Bitcoin has almost been a lightning rod since back then. You have the crypto natives, Bitcoin maxis, if you like, very against the idea. And you have the more practical minded advocates recognizing that one, it's inevitable. And two, it does have upsides. Is there a kind of a Trojan horse sort of element to it? Or, you know, the idea that this is a backdoor way to maybe to, to Larry Fink's point to democratize finance or revolutionize finance in, in that like virtue of more and more people now owning exposure to bit to bitcoin albeit via you know a third party institution that they then do their homework and figure out what it is and start to ask more, or at least a portion of them do and that that becomes a mechanism for awareness and development and eventually like you know what screw this i don't need to you know own an, own an etf share let me go off and own some of my own it's very possible but let's face it most people and no disrespect men most people are lazy when it comes to this. We all know that we shouldn't use Gmail, for instance, because of privacy issues. We know this, and yet we do it anyway. So we know that an ETF is not the true democratization of Bitcoin. Bitcoin doesn't need to be democratized. It already is, always has been. But it is the convenient wrapper and convenience, and we shouldn't criticize anyone for choosing this, is what most people are going to choose. Some people may do some more research. Others may just think, I've heard it's a hedge. I've heard it's an alternative. Larry Fink talked about it. I'll just throw it in there because what really do I have to lose? It's um, not necessarily though missing an opportunity because maybe those investors would never be involved in Bitcoin in the first place were it not for this additional convenience offered. And you know, let's face it, self-custody is still very difficult. That is not yet a solved problem. The technology part of it has largely been solved, but the usability of it hasn't. And I think until it is, we are going to see a lot of demand, reasonable demand, for these kind of wrappers that make it easy for everyone. That's a good thing in that it does broaden the market. It does you know, push the price up to a certain extent, and that brings in funding for projects that can you know, propel development forward on many, on many ways. And let's not forget, Bitcoin is a technology still that is still evolving. So funding for development for Bitcoin, as well as other crypto that will follow in its wake, is always a good thing. The institutionalization, though, does have a certain Trojan horse quality, as, as you hinted, Michael. We've seen the ramp up it can deliver. We've seen the almighty crash when the institutions leave. And we're not going to be able to escape that as long as macro-facing institutions are involved in the market. Then again, there's nothing we can do to prevent that from happening either. So again, playing a bit devil's advocate, because I agree with everything that was just been said, but and on a query, kind of given the environment that we're in, given the headwinds, let's put that, let's just use a nice neutral term, you know, that uh, that this entire innovation space has faced, certainly in the last bit of time, which is not new, but I think they're, those are taking a different form of attack. You know, what's the goal here, right? Is the goal, because I would argue that we're at a moment in time where normalization of the underlying asset is a really important 
goal. And you would think that that would have been, I think, I think the stickiness of the asset is well established. I mean, there's only like fringy, you know, randos who are kind of like claiming that that's anything but established, I would say. But the normalization of the underlying asset, I certainly do not think is anywhere near close to having been achieved. And so perhaps something like the normalcy of an ETF, right? And the kind of familiarity with that concept is it could could support the normalization of the underlying asset. So, and I take the point that, you know, it's pros and cons always on these things. And, and if you're distorting the true underlying nature of the underlying asset in ways that are just frankly wrong, as I think we already discussed, that could have a, a significant negative knock-on effect. However, curious to just get your thoughts. Like, what should the goal be? Should it be just, should we be focusing on this normalization piece of this and taking kind of the fear and the scariness out of this? And is an ETF, for example, a way of, of achieving some of that or accomplishing that goal? One of the many beautiful things about the Bitcoin ecosystem and the Bitcoin network and asset is that everyone has different goals. It is whatever the beholder wants it to be. There are many that want it to be a payments mechanism. And for many around the world, it is. There are many that want it to be the ultimate decentralized seeder resistance store of value. And for many around the world, it is. Let's isolate BlackRock's goal. What is BlackRock's goal here? Democratizing finance? I really don't think so. It's to make money. BlackRock okay. is in the money-making yep. business and it sees an opportunity. It no doubt has had several signals from clients that it would like an ETF, please. And it sees a big opportunity, especially be first in the market because the first takes the most, as we all know. In terms of normalizing it, yeah, most of, I mean, it's already been done. Canada has had Bitcoin spot ETFs for a very long time. Europe has had spot Bitcoin ETFs for a very mm -hmm. long time. Bitcoin has been on the headlines now for a very long time. Many of the US retail investors are aware of the regulatory headwinds, but Bitcoin is not the novelty that it was a few years ago. It is pretty normalized uh, already. An easier way to hold it in a diversified portfolio will certainly boost adoption. I don't think it's the, going to deliver the normalization that we want. And again, normalization for U.S. retail investors is a very different concept as to normalization to someone living in Egypt, for instance. I was reading this morning that uh, coin in, in Egyptian currency terms is at an all-time high. That's obviously not the case in other currencies. These are the kind of things that normalization around the world mean. It's entirely mm -hmm. in the eye of the beholder. And, mm -hmm. the, and Bitcoin is... Again, evolving as the free market wants it to. This is another thing that BlackRock will never be able to change no matter how much Bitcoin it accumulates. It's a free market and the market will do to Bitcoin what the market will do to Bitcoin. So so I think that's that's obviously fundamentally true, right? And, and, and it is an open system that will evolve in its ways. And I think I also like the idea that this process, whether it normalizes or not, uh, and, and whether it's appropriate even, does bring funding in, which then generates mm -hmm. and just grows that ecosystem in ways that we can't predict. However, I think that in the the sort of the broad mainstream conversation and also what that means for policymaking, one of the things I worry about in terms of institutionalization is that idea about what crypto is, I think worryingly defaults to the Gary Gensler view that it's a security, it's purely for investment. They are not necessarily utility systems. They are not network fuel for building decentralized models and, and communities. That idea that you know those of us who've come up through crypto from the beginnings and we looked at what ETH was and saw it as the gas for the... But no, the way that the SEC wants to see this is this is an investment in an idea. And like, 
stripping out any of that utility stuff and seeing it as just this investment thing. I think like by pushing it all through Wall Street and creating these and then and having what may become a majority of the world's investors in this holding those sorts of assets, it sort of again using the word normalizes, but it normalizes that sort of narrower perspective about what it is, and that may be a problem. I would say for those that would want to argue that you know what this is supposed to be broadly held amongst as many people as possible, and if you put a security label and a bunch of securities laws around it, you're not going to get that network effect that you need within a truly decentralized system. So I don't know, both of you, I'd love your thoughts on that. Yeah, well, I'll just add one thing, which is this goes back to, I think, almost the beginning. So to the point that institutions and their engagement with Bitcoin, it's been a long time conversation. And there are some who think that's anathema, like there shouldn't be any ability for uh, traditional financial institutions to engage with this in any way apart from retail. And there should be zero differentiation, no daylight there whatsoever. And others who I think maybe I would argue take a more pragmatic approach, which is, well, you can't stop it because it is a market and people are going to do what they're going to do with it. And those who are uh, accustomed to creating all kinds of slice and dice derivative kinds of products are going to do that thing. And that is in some ways kind of demonstrating, I think, the underlying flexibility of the asset and the ability it has to do these kinds of different things. But there is this philosophical uh, question I think people are, are, are wrestling with anew, which again is not a new discussion, which is to what extent is the entire point of Bitcoin to democratize finance, as it were, using the same language, uh, because it makes it um, possible or easier or acceptable or insert adjective to not engage with these legacy institutions. And that's the point versus it's just another mechanism for anyone to use as they see fit and another tool in the financial system. And I think uh, the perspective I think you're going to take on on this latest development in, in the United States, to your point, Noel, of course, ETFs exist all over the world already. But in the United States, I think it's going to depend a little bit on the philosophy you have underlying the point of the entire exercise in the first place. But curious, Noel, to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think you're you're totally right. There is a huge risk in the characterization of this is now an official set, and that might diminish some of the unofficial enthusiasm or the enthusiasm for an unofficial Asset, especially in areas that are trying to step away from the dollar. But on the other hand, the possibility that, or the, the likelihood that the US will at some stage within the next 18 months get a Bitcoin spot ETF is a walking stamp of validation. Let's remember that the United States is the largest financial market in the world. And so this stamp of validation from that market does actually mean more to the ETFs that are already trading actively in other areas, no disrespect, obviously. But that is something that official organizations around the world are going to take note of. And I know that many central banks, for instance, have for some time been studying putting Bitcoin on their reserves. We are seeing around the world a move away from the dollar in international bank reserves, uh, largely, actually, that's going to gold and some diversification among currencies, but partly because many of the central banks are having trouble getting through the approval to do so because of the perceived lack of legitimacy of Bitcoin. With this stamp of legitimacy, there exists the possibility, and this is just still a possibility, but it's a very intriguing one, that mm. official organizations around the world might have an easier time pushing through approval to start holding Bitcoin on some very, very official balance sheets. So does this feed into ESG at all, right? Because 
Uh, it's, it's no coincidence, I would say, maybe it is, but like BlackRock also a big player in ESG-related investing, vocal supporter of the idea that, you know, you can build responsible models around that. And of course, the big conversation around Bitcoin is like, you know, is it environmentally sound? Is it is it ESG compliant? And there are lots of folks who have talked about ways to sort of stamp Bitcoin as this is renewably mined Bitcoin, which then creates a whole other conversation around fungibility and two different, you know, yeah. clean coins and dirty coins. I, I just wonder, like, I mean, this is pure speculation, but like, does the institutionalizing of these potentially large holdings of Bitcoin in the hands of these asset managers who are in there with the ESG compliance world, does that in any way lead to that? I mean, does it become a standard in somehow? That, that is so such own... a great question. That's such yeah. a great question. Something I've been starting to think a lot about recently, because we all know that the ESG debate is changing much more fundamentally than most of us realize. We're also seeing this reflected in the somewhat lower volume now of the anti-Bitcoiners from the ESG community. We haven't really heard of any ridiculous bills being proposed. We're not hearing the same level of noise. And that's because the ESG debate is changing. People are realizing more and more just how futile it is, except for some holdouts perhaps in Europe. Around the world, people are realizing it, it, it just does not work. We are not ready for it. And if you just even look at some of the mining that is going to be needed to even satisfy half of the promises, it's not very environmentally friendly at all. We have Germany that is closing down nuclear plants, but firing up old, defunct coal plants. We're seeing a similar kind of thing in parts of the UK now as well. And we're seeing BlackRock itself being sued in some states because of their uh, seemingly restrictive stance that many states seem as unfair when ESG is such a hand-wavy concept in the first mm. place. By the way, I'm all for trying to protect the planet as much as we can, and let's recycle, but let's also be realistic. The goals were always designed for a very few privileged elites without taking into account the situation of most of the world and the cost behind it. The debate around ESG is shifting. So it's not so much that Bitcoin is becoming clean as the priority that it be clean has somewhat lessened. At the same time, as more and more studies, more and more businesses are showing that Bitcoin can be clean. We know now that most Bitcoin is mined with renewable energy. We also are seeing examples of Bitcoin mining funding the development of renewable grids in places that that was just not economically possible before. So the conversation is heading into one of the most constructive territories around Bitcoin that I've ever seen. Yeah, that's a positive spin. I, speaking of elites, I did see your tweet from earlier, Noel, about this, the, uh, the Spanish, uh, I think it was the environment minister who flew on a private jet to a a climate change meeting and then rode her bicycle with all of the, with police cars in tow and cameras as she rode the bicycle into the conference center. <laughs> Insult to our intelligence. When will they realize this? Oh my God. Unbelievable. Speaking of Europe though, since we've got you, we, we are not going to let you go off without sort of weighing in as well. And what the whole, I mean, you know, Sheila and I have spent a lot of time the last few months talking about the about dichotomy, but certainly the divergence between what looks like for now, at least still, a very hard line position on regulation in the US and what we would have called, I suppose, the more constructive approaches being taken uh, with MICA, of course, in Europe and the UK's new regime. And we talk about Hong Kong and all these other countries, Dubai and UAE and others that are sort of trying to create sort of a more, not necessarily crypto friendly, but more constructive regulatory environments. 
what is the you know it's early days but like you know micro is now law what's the take on it right now in europe very positive very positive and a reminder that most of the world isn't really too fussed at the us's issues the rest of the world is pressing ahead with crypto regulation anyway and gambia and namibia there countries mm. around the world are passing frameworks yep. because they understand that crypto is not going away might as well get ahead of it might as well see what opportunities this can bring to citizens which is what governments should be doing. Uh, anyway, without getting into what the US government should or shouldn't be doing for its citizens and the role of innovation in the country, what uh, Micah, Micah is very well received. So far, obviously, there are some criticisms of the caps on the stable coins and things like that, but they're really not that serious. It's a framework in one of the largest economic blocks in the world that encourages institutional participation. It encourages startups to experiment and it encourages interconnectivity as well with other regimes that are trying to pass similar laws. That is very encouraging. That is something that uh, the United States will eventually realize it needs to catch up with. But the fact that Europe has been one of the first, Europe, which is normally the slowest of the mark. Also, let's remember that it's law, but it doesn't actually come into effect until the end of 2024, June of 2024 for stablecoins. So there's still a long way to go. And we saw the Danish government order Saxo Bank to ditch its crypto holdings, which were not very large, but still the point of the thing. So, you know, there's some way to go yet. But in the arc of history, we're practically there. Hmm. Well, I think it's also important to note that it did take forever. I mean, like, it was it was in process and being discussed and debated, I mean, for years and years and years and years. So it's not as if this kind of came up overnight. Now it kind of emerged into popular, the crypto industry's popular understanding relatively quickly when it was pretty baked, but it was years and years. And, and it was a reaction in part to the ICO nonsense of 2017. And now what I find fascinating, and I've said this before, that most other jurisdictions did something after the 2017 ICO. Like I, I said on stage recently, part of my job when I joined the forum was to read a bunch of white papers and figure out what's going on. And I can tell you, like the quality, as we all know, was highly, highly disparate. Some of them were like the pigeon at the typewriter, you know, kind of like picking <laughs> letters arbitrarily. And some of them were extraordinarily well thought through and had underlying basis and technical architecture and whatever it was, right? They were not equivalents. And yet they had all of them attracted investments from various people, right? So the idea that other jurisdictions saw that and said, huh, probably need to be doing something here and paying attention, as opposed to the US who just did the sort of hand wavy, I don't know, ostrich, I don't even know what you want to call the approach of nothingness. We, until have, we have 1933 the, securities yeah. laws, we don't need to do anything. We don't, we, exactly. Perfectly right. good why laws. We, why would we have to change anything? <laughs> this horse really and buggy, it's perfectly so, fine. Why would you want this? Uh, yeah, that's right. But people think like, oh, you know, Europe was so on it. And they got it. Look at how it No, 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 no. That was many years in the making. And the idea that they were able to bring together, I mean, the process to get laws passed in Europe is not easy. It is extraordinarily laborious. It is more complicated than the process to get laws passed in the United States, if I may. And yet they were able to get, it's a far from perfect piece of legislation, but it exists. And the existence of it alone is remarkable. And it really is something that has catapulted Europe into the, into the awareness of not just the crypto community, but I think the public as a general matter. Uh, to say this is an approach that at least is making a very strong effort to balance innovation and consumer protection. 
Yeah, you're totally, you're totally right, Sheila. I mean, let's not forget that, yeah, things move so slowly in Europe, but it's a mishmash of countries with different priorities. And the, just the structure of the government is unnecessarily arcane. It's a labyrinth, it really is. But there's two things to bear in mind here. One, it is used to currency innovation. It has a relatively new currency. It showed that it can totally upend how money works in Europe too. Its payment systems are pretty advanced. I mean, we just sit ourselves, our sides laughing here, thinking that the United States still uses paper checks to pay taxes. We couldn't, I can remember the last time I even saw a paper check here. So those two things. One, it's a mishmash. It works hard to get things done. Consensus is hard one, but lasting when it comes. And two, it's used to payments innovation. I remember back in 2017, when I was at Coindesk, I was sent to Brussels to cover an EU meeting, one of the first EU meetings on this strange thing called crypto. This is when they were starting to think about it. It was very, very new, but it was in one of these official rooms in the in the um, government in the central building, and there was standing room only. It was packed with a lot of EU members and some, you know, some members of the journalists, and so a lot of startups were there as well from around Europe who'd flown in for this just to see what the EU is thinking. It was packed with people eager to hear where this might go. And the politician chairing the meeting said something that blew my mind. Bear in mind, this is 2017, and it highlights how Europe has traditionally seen currencies, which is why I think it was one of the first large blocks to get this through. He said, what is currency anyway? It's a Ponzi game. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's something that we were totally accustomed to hearing from Bitcoin enthusiasts, right? But coming from mm. the mouth of a white-haired politician it was really startling wow yeah whether we want to go so far as call it ponzi or not um I, I do think that the fact that you're getting guys like larry fink and others who are of the mainstream talking about the value of bitcoin as they're not necessarily saying a hedge against inflation but they're talking about it as a bulwark against the uncertainty of a fiat world and holding a diversified portfolio that can run and you know that they're normalizing the idea that you know this i suppose i, I often call it a depoliticized currency uh that is removed from from the sort of the human intervention of, of fiat currency is a valuable thing to hold even just as a hedge or a protection against things so the fact that that language is now maybe going from that like rev that that uh, trailblazing eu figure that you were talking about there in the world to to now having larry fink essentially talk about it is is something sort of pretty significant one last thing before we go then, like, uh, because weeks back I wrote about, you know, the EU's, you know, regulatory proposal for CBDCs as well. And, and I, I fixated it maybe a little too much. I don't know, but I just, I just, just chose to on what I saw as a contradiction where, it, you know, Europe obviously is very upfront about trying to be protective of privacy. Certainly GDPR is a part of that when it comes to the internet. And there, there I think is a legitimate concern amongst, um, many people who are, looking into the future of a CBDC or otherwise, that it could become a threat to citizens' civil rights. And that's a really important point that people worry about it. Yet it just seemed, again, hand wavy for the EU to say, and, and this is going to be preserving of, of privacy, but however, we're demanding that all of the merchants who accept this keep a record of the transactions, right? That there's, there's actually this sort of record-keeping requirement, which is put in place purely for money laundering purposes and so forth, but yet we're going to be protective of privacy. Like, I mean, I don't really understand how you can have that cake and eat it too. The way you can is twofold. One, to remember that 
that's the situation we have now. Merchants keep a track record now. Oh, the only right. way to avoid that kind of record is to use cash. And the EU has made clear that they're not going to remove the use of cash. They're just not. That's in, that's in the proposal. And two, NFC transactions, in other words, offline, NF, using the, the um, chip, uh, offline transactions with the digital euro will also not be tracked. In other words, as close to cash as you can digitally get. Okay, so I thought so, that the NFT offlines were also being tracked in some way. No, okay. no apparently they will not be recorded or tracked. Mm. There's There will probably be limits on the amount you can spend. But again, that's what we have now. You can't mm. withdraw more than a thousand euros from any ATM. You cannot pay more than a thousand euros in cash for any service legally. Obviously, that uh, doesn't mean it doesn't happen. You, you there are there are fines if you do. Mm-hmm. So it's an improvement on the current situation. To be honest, right now mm-hmm. merchants track everything anyhow. And what I'm particularly excited about, Michael, is the potential innovation. Just imagine when everyone in Europe has to have a digital wallet. It's probably going to be not open source, but there will be applications built on top of that. The innovation for services, it's going to be in conjunction with the private mm. sector. Banks are going to be wanting also wanting to offer all sorts of services on top of the digital euro wallet. And we don't really yet know where this is going to be, but a world in which everyone has a digital wallet anyway yeah. is going to open certain minds to what else can it's I a really use interesting this point. For? Yeah, it's really because it, yeah. it does. We often talk about how the role that the state has played in the US yeah. and elsewhere in driving technology, if they mandate a certain thing, if they build it, you know, whether it's DARPA's role in the, the formation of the internet or, you know, a whole host of, of areas, you know, the highway system and so forth that is created by the state. But then now that it's in place, enables this innovation. I think it's a really interesting point because, yeah, you've got, you know, the, the idea that the wallet, which many people think is, is that literally just going to become our, our holder of our identity, right? It's going to become the interface that we have with the ownership of assets, the means by which we interact, not just with people in terms of transactions and regular payments, but how we consume content, right? And so that that is our now our, our portal into the, the digital online world, but, but the wallet being this sort of protector as well, if you like, of identity. So that's fascinating, that idea that, that you sort of like fast track the process because the state is now endorsing one particular uh, application of it that will require this other thing to then be developed. I don't know if you have any thoughts. Absolutely. On that. And the fostering of innovation will extend to privacy services. If that is not trusted, or if that is not, God forbid, offered, uh, breaking the promises, but if it's not trusted, then new privacy services will emerge just like has done with payment throughout ever since we've had payments. Um, email, for instance, they, privacy services exist today for crypto payments, for traditional payments, for email services. Most of us choose not to use them because we couldn't be bothered, but those that do care will find solutions. It's true. The laziness factor cannot really be overstated and the convenience of how people make their decisions. What do you think about the timing of the rollout? Do you think that it's on track uh, for what? Yes, I think Europe will get retail CBDC. I don't think the US will ever get a retail CBDC. I think Europe will, but I don't think anyone's going to use it. To be honest, they're talking about putting really low caps on how much you can hold in your account, and it will be account-based, so you can't exactly split it between other accounts. And they're talking about between three and 4,000, which just creates a lot of friction. I mean, you're going to have to keep topping it up, but it just sounds like more of a hassle. And, you know, especially since payments, retail payments in Europe is so easy anyway. I just need to know someone's mobile phone number to send them a payment. So I think for political reasons, it will go through. I think it is going to drive some innovation. I don't think people are going to be using it very much. We're seeing examples of retail CBDCs in countries that don't have our legacy financial system with its conveniences also struggling 
to get retail CBDC traction. Yeah, this yeah. is the view I've for a very long time, simply because to your point, you know, what problem is it really solving and how high is the pain point? And if you're going to put restrictions on it that even if they exist in other places, just that the switching costs are really high. And I say this as somebody, terrible example, but just to vent for a bit, I just changed pharmacies. I cannot even explain. I'm like, just done. I'm, I'm like, I want, just, like, go to bed. I want to just go to bed, you know, for like the, for a week. Like it's just changing pharmacies. I mean, it's imagine it was something right. much more complicated. It's exhausting. Exhausting. And, and to your point, a lot of these things are easier in Europe. Nevertheless, I mean, pe- unless people, the, the threshold unhappiness you need to have with your provider to actually make a change in the middle of your very busy life are pretty high. And the hypothetical benefits you might mm. get from something without a government mandate, to your point, Michael, you know, people aren't, I just don't think that's the way life works. But, but you just <laughs> did hit upon the, the perfect reason to as to why a universal wallet concept with that's the, right. you know, sort of decentralized credentials concept that's also connected to that is a really valuable thing, right? That, that oh, you, completely. You don't have to depend upon it. the pharmacy to hold your records and you've got your records. Why do I need someone else to? Why don't you? So anyway, that's it's. There, it's going to be yeah, lots of hurdles to get through, lots of weaving paths through this process. But clearly, Noel, I, I love the fact that you put a positive spin on these things. You know, you, yeah, you're looking at CBDCs and you're seeing how yes, it's not a great idea, but you always manage to see how out of this, this ecosystem of positivity can can grow. Which I think is also an interesting uh, reflection on on who you are. Because I'm going to make the point right now for those who don't know. And you are out up front with this, but you're going through a bit of a challenging time because you uh, were diagnosed with breast cancer recently and people can't see you, but we're looking at you with your bald head at the moment. I'm just telling you, I'm very, very proud of you. You're just owning this like a boss. And I know that you're going to get through it really, really easily because you are a sort of a force of positivity and constructive thought. And you're applying that to everything, including your own health here. So all the very, very best of luck with the process. And thank you so much for being on the show today. Oh, thank you, Michael. And this is a podcast, so your listeners can't see me blowing kisses in your direction. Thank you very much. You also, Sheila. I appreciate it. We're all ready for you, Noel. So we'll see you on, I'm sure, in short order. It's always such a pleasure having you. All right. Thank and you. thank you, all of you, for joining us. Uh, you've been listening to Money Reimagined. You can always listen to us weekly on the Coindesk Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. And we would love to hear from you. And response to this show or any other, email us at podcasts at coindesk.com. Subject line, Money Reimagined. Thank you for joining us. Bye for now. You've been listening to Money Reimagined. This episode has been produced and edited by Michelle Mousseau. Our executive producer is Jared Swartz. Our theme song is Aida by Neon Beach. Download wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a review. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Please reach out to us at podcast at coindesk.com, subject line, Money Reimagined. Or you can reach out to me directly at Michelle with one L at coindesk.com. Thanks for listening.